Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to another hour dedicated to the notion of enlightenment. An hour for inquiry and reflection, all in an effort to understand exactly what enlightenment means and what it is to be enlightened. An hour devoted to exploring the edge of consciousness and all that is implied thereof. An hour that recognizes the nature of the subjective experience as being at least as important as the objective reality we reside within. Indeed, an hour for the open-minded, willing to examine their deepest beliefs, an hour designed to help us go further inward and perhaps challenge some of those old ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. This is an hour where we strive to evaluate knowledge as inseparable from the total experience of reality. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Today is December the 7th, and on this day in 1941, the Japanese Navy carried out a devastating attack against the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt proclaimed this day to be, quote, a day which will live in infamy, end quote. It was this day that shocked America out of the so-called neutrality attitude and moved it from clandestine support of the U.K. to a declaration of war. History was truly written on this day 69 years ago. Many of those we all knew and loved fought in that war, and many gave up their lives so that we could all enjoy the freedoms that we have today. In honor of all of those who have given so much to this great country, we'll here at Provocative Enlightenment just take a minute to offer our silent gratitude while we listen to the U.S. Army Band play our national anthem. Thank you, thank you, especially to all of you that serve and protect. All right, each week I read a few of your letters as our way of paying respect to the importance you play in helping us to shape our show and improve it in every way. Last week our show guests uh, were Drs. Raymond Moody and John Turner, and our subject was the Shared Death Experience, or SDE, together with NDEs, or Near-Death Experiences. Sue from the United Kingdom wrote, I love the show again this week about NDEs. You're picking all my favorite subjects lately. I'm fascinated by this phenomena. I thought Raymond Moody and John Turner seemed very kind, thoughtful, open-minded people. If only more people were able to step outside the box as they do. 
I enjoyed the discussion about the original Greek meaning of what it means to be a skeptic. How ironic that a strand of the original philosophy promoted open-mindedness. You could not say that of modern skeptics. End quote. Thanks for the email, Sue, and you're right about those would-be skeptics. The term skeptic derives from the Greek noun skepsis, which means examination, inquiry, consideration. Unfortunately, however, to be a true skeptic almost always leads one to a point of total skepticism, since arguably nothing can be known with an absolute certainty outside of our so-called definitional agreements. Now, Rav, what would you think about inviting the skeptic of all religious skeptics to our show, Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion? I mean, after all, this is a this is provocative enlightenment. Do you think he could add anything of value to our understanding of who we are, what and why we behave and believe as we do, and so forth? Remember, it's provocative enlightenment. What was it Dawkins said to Rupert Sheldrake about all the science in the world? He didn't care about it anyway if it proved something he wasn't interested in. But isn't that enlightening in of itself? When you have the hard scientists, the so-called scientists, and, and the nature yeah. of science is objective inquiry. And they refuse to look at hard data, but they take a position that there is no such thing as life after death or a God or a creator or any of that stuff. And they will not look at the hard data. Doesn't that discount them completely? Most certainly. All right. Patty wrote, I noticed how you kept drawing Rav into your conversation on the show. She's a natural, but if she goes on the show, we would lose her in the chat room, and we can't have that. Life after life, great show. We are all connected somehow. That theory is six degrees of separation, and love is the connection. Work on that two-hour show, won't you, Rav? Thanks again for the very provocative enlightenment. Well, thank you, Patty, and I won't steal Rav from the chat room, but mostly because she won't let me. As for the two-hour show, that seems to have become a regular request in our letters, so we are working on that. Tara wrote, Too quick, but some great thoughts and beliefs shared as usual. I learned, too, I learned so much from this show. Well, thanks, Tara. We appreciate you listening, and we love your feedback. Richard wrote, Your CDs have changed my life. Thank you, Richard, and for all of you. All right, one more letter. And this is a letter that Ravinder personally has asked me to respond to. Uh, so I'm going to. Lynn wrote, quote, I have heard guests on your show more than once comment on the existence of evil. Since lack is only a perception, i.e. poverty consciousness is only an illusion in this abundant universe, is not evil merely a perceived lack of good? I like what Esther Hicks says about this topic. Namely, there is only a source of well-being. And Mystic Wallace Waddles, who says that if you see anything other than good in God's creation, then it is only a perception, and that perception is not truth. In any case, if God is the one source and the one power and is infinite, omnipresent, and benevolent, how can there be evil or even any room for it? Further, why would you want to give it, or any negative, much time or attention when whatever we focus on, we create? I'd like to hear what you think. Thanks for giving your listeners an opportunity to be stimulated into deep, meaningful thought. Close quote. All right. Thanks, Lynn, for the letter first. And I'll treat the Omni everything in a moment when I do the setup for today's show. But let me go directly to your first couple of premises. And I quote, 
Since lack is only a perception, poverty consciousness is only an illusion and evil merely a perceived lack of good. If you see anything other than good, then it is only a perception and that perception is not the truth. Close quote. Let's try this on for size. There are real starving children who will die today. There are real women who will be raped and brutalized today, tomorrow and forever, unless something changes. There are pedophiles and serial killers stealing children off the streets in front of their schools and doing unimaginable things to them. There are brutish pigs torturing animals as I speak somewhere in this country and doing so just for the fun of it, just for the thrill they get out of it. Is any of this evil? Is my perception poor because I fail to find in these loathsome acts the so-called good? I'll tell you the good I do see. These are crimes against humanity that should be stopped. So I give to charities that support the less fortunate, not because my vision is blurred, but because I recognize that I can contribute something that helps the world to become better. In my view, when this world is all good, and only all good, then it will cease to exist, for it will no longer be needed. Lynn, those who would say poverty is only a state of consciousness are not looking at the real world. Here are some facts. Every year, 15 million children die of hunger. The World Health Organization estimates that one-third of the world is well-fed, one-third is underfed, one-third is starving. Every five minutes, at least 200 people die of starvation in the world. Over 4 million will die this year. One out of every eight children under the age of 12 in the U.S. goes to bed hungry every night. Try sending these children those words about poverty, or better still, if you really believe there is no poverty in the world, take some action to do away with the charities that promote this idea. I mean, after all, why should so much money be used this way when we could print more books that would deny the very presence of poverty and in this way end the notion? Well, I'm sorry, but in my mind, that's a fool's game. It's somewhat like the story of the bird that buries its head in the sand. And by the way, before any of you write me, ostriches really do not bury their heads in the sand, contrary to popular myth. Okay, Ravinder, is there evil in the world? Is there poverty, real poverty, or is this all just our perception, a great ruse created by defective perception? I mean, you know something about the nightmares that go on daily in places like Afghanistan. A few feet, figuratively, further along the the divide in Kashmir, separating Pakistan from India, where you were born, and you are literally living under those conditions known as the law of Sharia. Share your ideas, your experience with us. You know, I was truly blessed. I mean, I was born in India, but my family, my parents were born in Punjab on the Pakistan side of it. And it wasn't until I read Khalid Hussaini's books, you know, um, The Kite Flyer, A Thousand Splendid Sons, that I discovered how similar the cultures are. I mean, there's great language similarities, great food, great, you know, just the cultures are really similar. So it really brought home to me how close I came to being an Afghani woman, you know, wearing burqa, you know, this stuff. 
I feel I feel totally blessed, and I think it's our responsibility not to forget those people. You okay. know, but but what is what is wrong? I mean, Afghani women. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being an Afghani woman. So they have no freedom. They have no independence. They have. They don't have any. They don't have what makes America great: life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, and, and if you're a widow and you're you're born into this system, what what happens to the widow? You become a whore. If there is a common Indian profanity that basically is, is a curse to say, you know, to have y- y- you actually die and your wife become a whore because a whore isn't a widow; she's a whore. That's the only way that she can she can she sustain can, herself, she can sustain herself, or her children. Yeah. So it isn't just the stoning and and the decapitations and and so on and so forth. You, now, would you consider this to be a blight on humanity? Would you consider this to be evil, or is this just a cultural relative uh, issue? No, it's evil. But I think for us to grow spiritually, you know, we can choose not to face it at all and say that we are comfortable and we are happy, or we can choose to do something about it. And I think denying it insults those people okay all right i just wanted to get you you asked me to treat it and i did, I did. I think it's and important. now i got your side out that's all the time we're going to take for letters today but i do invite you to opine uh, by leaving comments on my website emailing me at eldon at intertalk.com and by joining me on facebook i do read all your letters and they do impact our programming so once again thank you uh, now to today's show. Most of us have ideas about what we think heaven or hell, good and evil, right and wrong, and so forth are all about. It's my experience, however, that few of us have really ever sat down and written out our ideas, testing them all against each other, discovering their limitations and dissonance. The result is a patchwork of ideas that often fails to take on any true cohesiveness and or a series of definitions that can and usually does become both exclusivistic with respect to the only right way and mutually exclusive by way of definition. Let me unpack that some. Exclusivistic. If you don't do it my way, if you don't come this way, then you fail. In other words, a a kind of performance oriented through only one possible of the thousands of possibilities out there. Uh, unless you come this way, you cannot be saved. We have all heard that from someone somewhere. So perhaps you choose to swallow this religion or this teacher as absolute, for after all, only they have the right way. And that's what I mean by exclusivistic. Mutually exclusive now, by way of definition, can go something like this. Uh, Harken back to the letter from Lynn. God is all-powerful, omnipotent, all-good, omnibenevolent, and all-knowing, omniscient. All right. Then an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God could have certainly created Adam with a perfect will. That is, a will that would not have sinned. But since this God chose not to, indeed he created Adam with a deficient will, then who's guilty of Adam's transgression, God or Adam? These questions can continue ad infinitum, like the one I have shared with all of you before. If God is all-powerful, can God build a rock so large God cannot lift it? We get tangled up in definitions and nonsense. Well, our guest today, you might say, became obsessed with the idea of God. In doing so, he generated the ire of some who would insist on strict classical interpretations of biblical literature. He has excited folks outside the Christian community as well with his insistence that religion often fails us. 
He has dared to ask and challenged us all to ask what some consider to be blasphemous, and that is, what is there about God that you don't really believe? Our guest has been with us before, and many of you have written asking us to bring him back. He is the author of the phenomenal book, The Shack. More than one Christian minister is screaming to all that will listen, don't go near the shack. But I must tell you, I love this book. It is a great read, far more uh, of the Ecclesiastic are, are, are telling you, go get this book. It's an adventure. It's a mystery uh, with an ending that will catch all of you. Inspirational, thought-provoking, insightful. These uh, They're one-word references that I'd use to describe The Shack by our guest, William Paul Young. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, William Paul Young. Hey, honored to be with you. It's a, it's a great joy, especially in this time of uh, this time of the year. Full of, well, full of grace in the in-between places, you know. Indeed, our pleasure. Now, it, it just so our audience knows, you prefer that I call you Paul. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a uh, family thing. My dad's William Henry. My son's William Chad. I'm William Paul. Grandson's William Gavin. And we all go by our middle name. So, yeah. Nobody in my right. world knows me as William. Good. Okay. Let's begin, if you will, uh, because we're going to have a lot of people listening today that weren't with us last time by sharing some of the story with our audience that they're going to find in the shack. Now, I don't want you to give away anything uh, that could spoil reading the book. But that said, I mean, I'd read it still if you did, because I know how well the story develops. But just a quick overview of the story. Um, mystery, suspense, wrapped up in a what if. And that's as succinct as I can make it. It's um, The what if part is in the middle of our uh, pain, our great sadnesses, places we have uh, gotten stuck. What if there is actually a God who is good all the time and uh, is involved in the details of our lives? Uh, how would that make our story different? And um, and what would change? So it follows a a man who's um, stuck in, you know, none of us have a single great sadness. It's usually a multiple um, multiple rivers of of hurt and uh, and pain and loss and grief and sadness and and uh, and he he sort of becomes every man, especially every Western man, man in the sense of male and female generic and. Um, and the book obviously you had to undergo uh, quite a process uh, and, it, and it's clear that you really did uh, invest a lot of time in clarifying your ideas of god religion uh, the process that we call life share what it was like for you to because you don't consider yourself to be a writer at least you didn't used to to go through this process and why you did so i've always loved writing so the writing part is not a big deal. I just never thought of myself as an author because I'd never published anything. And um, um, the the process itself, for me, it was timing. And um, um, my wife, Kim, had been asking me for about four years if I would write a gift for our children. We have six children. Our youngest is 17, and our oldest is 30. And, and uh, 
her mandate was, you know, because I'd written gifts for friends and family for years, poetry and songs and short stories, and, and her mandate was, you know, someday would you please put in one place how you think because you think outside the box as a gift for our kids. And and so that's all I was trying to do was to try to get this done by Christmas in 05. And, um, and the writing process, it was, it was finally time, you know, there, there was a timing to it where I felt healthy enough as a human being. And, and the book actually reflects um, uh, a really excruciating, uh, deep 11-year uh, transformational healing process for me. And, uh, and so the book comes out of healing as opposed to being part of the healing process. It doesn't mean that, you know, that we're done, or there's always lots of finish work to do in the house of the soul. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a way for me to communicate to my kids um, using story, because uh, story has um, unique properties like all creative arts do. Um, unique ways of penetrating into the into the precious places of the heart without asking for permission, and um, and so that's that's what I did. I wrapped how I think inside a story. Inside uh, uh, Mackenzie, the main character is is largely me, and um, and so to use that uh, form to try to communicate what happens when Western man finds out the God he believes in doesn't exist, and then who does? And so that sort of, uh, sort of was the impetus behind it. The, the writing process itself was wonderful. It was like, you know, I was working three jobs. You know, three years ago I was shipping out soldering tips and cleaning toilets in a little manufacturer's rep warehouse. So, you know, don't be, don't be impressed. I mean, it's, I'm a very ordinary person who was allowed to participate in something that I had no clue what it was going to do. It was just a gift for my kids. Made 15 copies at Office Depot, went back to work. So, And at some point submitted it, and it is so, now sold many, many millions, has a great influences out there. It's absolutely a terrific book. We have one minute before we uh, go to break, but in in that one minute, give our listening audience a heads up. Uh, you have a marvelous website out there with some great blog. What is that website? It's windrumors.com, R-U-M-O-R-S, the American spelling. I'm Canadian, but uh, it's the American spelling, windrumors.com. All right. It's a great site. You guys will all want to check it out. We'll be uh, back in a few minutes. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment on Hay House Radio. My guest today is William Paul Young, and we are discussing his wonderful book, The Shack. We'll be right back after these words from some of our friends. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's Inner Talk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InnerTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.innertalk.com. 
That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com. Intertalk dot com. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing the phenomenal book, The Shack, with the author William Paul Young. But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to sign up for my free newsletter. When you receive my newsletter, you not only gain access to some great articles, uh, freebies, and timely news, but you also know where I am and what's on next. You can sign up for the free newsletter by going to eldentaylor.com. And once there, be sure to check out all the free content. We have a lot of material that is yours for the downloading, books, audio, video, and more. Okay, I also invite you to join me on Facebook and follow me on Twitter. Now, let's get back to the show. Paul, uh, you heard the setup piece. Uh, what's your take on evil? Is there evil in the world? That becomes a relevant, germane subject uh, with respect to the shack, so you must have a view. Yeah, I have. Absolutely, there is evil. Uh, it's, it permeates, you know, if there were no evil, there would be no war. If there were no evil, there would be, there would be no abuse of women that the way that there is. And yes, philosophically, I, I agree with what the gal was saying, that in, in, a, in a true philosophical sense, evil is the absence of good. That's true. But it's almost like we human beings do not respect the incredible creation that we are, where we have the power to re-engineer creation, to create something that didn't exist. We, we have the power to uncreate it, and that's what we've done. So we have taken life and created unlife, death. We have taken freedom and created bondage. We've created uh, uh, darkness from removing light. I mean, we are incredible, powerful beings. And uh, part of the reason that there is the existence of evil is because there is a God who respects the human creation way more than we do. And so, yeah, and, uh, you know, I've, there is a, there's a great group in, in, down in uh, the um, mid part of the southern United States. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Rohr and his yeah. uh, Center for Action and Contemplation. And... Um, Action is the first word, and a lot of people say, well, why don't you have contemplation first? And, he's, and his point is, if there's no action, there's nothing to contemplate. And the issue of action is not just personal. It's social, and it's cultural, and, uh, and um, you know, it ought to grieve our hearts deeply 
at, at how we have used power to uncreate creation. That's uh, very well said. Now, um, I'm, I'm just going to pick up on something there because I guess it's a point that I make all the time. I'm, I'm a little sensitive to, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I've often used the metaphor that um, before we take this corporal form, we have a good deal of knowledge that uh, we could say is analogous to, uh, let's let's assume that I wanted to be a pole vaulter, so I took my computer and I modeled it through the computer how fast I'd have to run the length of the pole, where I'd hold it, the trajectory, the angle I'd put it down at, when I'd straighten my elbows, etc. and so forth. And I therefore have all of this modeled perfectly in the computer. And because I know that, that does not mean that I am a pole vaulter. To me, action, and, 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 and I'm asking you for your take on this, action in this world is indeed learning to do many of the things that we already knew before we got here and to do them correctly. It, it, what is your take on that? I, yeah, I'd use a little different language, but probably saying much the same thing, and that is that every human being is made in the image of God, and that investment is there. You know, you have to damage children. You know, children aren't aren't naturally uh, going to go in directions that are that are uh, worry centered, fear based, guilt driven. All of those things. You know, and every person we meet was once a child. That's that's part of the paradox. And um, and so yeah, there is this unbelievable. Uh, creation that is embedded in the heart of every 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 human being is a universe within themselves and uh, and in that there there is all this capability but it wasn't ever engineered in order to exist in isolation and that's why if you've read the book you know that the the trinity is a huge concept and reality for me because it means that before anything existed as far as space time and matter there existed a relationship of other-centered love. And so everything is born out of that, and everything is fundamentally an expression of that. It's, it's we who have the power to damage that. Okay. I, w- I was going to save the Trinity for a little bit later, but, but since we've gone to the <laughs> Trinity, because that is a major part of your book, uh, and, and that is a major reason that uh, a good deal... Uh, of clerics have, have uh, challenged your work and tell people to stay away from it. Uh, in, indeed, there is a, a YouTube video out there that is, is titled Don't Go Near the Shack, and it starts right out by saying that you portray the divinity as being this black woman. Uh, how unchristian and how how that defies the gospel. What is your answer to that kind of conversation and 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 expound some on your idea of the trinity yeah you know uh, fundamental orthodox theology says that god is not male or female but maleness and femaleness are expressions of the very character and nature of god and uh god is spirit so uh but god is person and um and so the idea the understanding of the trinity is three persons who coexist in one essence, but the persons never become the other, and yet they experience everything together. The early 
church fathers used the term perichoresis, which is mutual interpenetration or the great dance. And um, and so, you know, for me, one of the one of the critical issues is if you have only a monolithic God that is a singularity out of who created everything, then you have a God who love is an is maybe an attribute at best, but usually it's a weakness. Um, and that God would, in order not to be weak, he could not require an object to love. So you don't have a subject-object relationship before the creation. And that's why certain monolithic religions that exist in the world, they don't, they don't have a God who loves. They have a God who is compassionate or does actions um, that are kind, those kinds of things, but not love, because love requires another. And yet in the Trinity, you have this other, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, who are constantly in this relationship of other-centered love. If you only have a monolithic like Plato's God, out of which everything emanates, if that's all you have, then self-centeredness would be the ultimate good. The healthier you became as a human being, the more self-centered you became, because that's the God that you that would have created everything and out of whose image everything is made. And yet we don't we know that's not true. The healthier you become as a human being, the more other centered you become. You don't lose yourself in the process. Just as father doesn't lose the fatherhood or the fatherness of that person or the son or the sonness of that person or the spirit the spiritness. You don't lose your person. But you then begin to participate in something that is much greater than you, and uh, your love becomes other-centered. So that, to me, is important, because uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, traditional theological paradigms, is that you can either have a God who is a singularity, who is self-centered, out of which everything is created, or you have a God who is a relational being in which love is at the very core. In fact, you can't find anything hidden behind love and relationship. Justice is not something lurking behind. There is no dark side of God in that sense. But a lot of our theology, unfortunately, we started defining terms that are used in Orthodox Christianity, for example, um, after all the damage. So we do have kind of a schizophrenic God. We have a God the Father with a different agenda than God the Son. We have um, uh, we have a dark side, and uh, and I think that comes directly because we haven't gone back far enough. We haven't looked and said, well, what existed before there was anything? And, okay, and what was now, the nature in, of that? Now, in fairness to some of the other approaches, uh, you know, Vedantic literature is a case in point, uh, but I just use that. We could, we could look at Upanishads and, and other documents. Um, the creation myth essentially goes something like this. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially goes something like this. Uh, God contemplated himself, divided himself, and created all things, which is, um, well, that's, uh, that's a popular kind of, uh, idea, uh, today among what's known as New Age followers, uh, and a comparable idea to, uh, the notion of the Big Bang, singularity, as uh, Hawkins calls it, uh, divided itself and created everything. So I understand your philosophical position about God having to interact in order to love, but then 
does that mean that we're incapable of love without a relationship? Does it? Are you you? Are you saying that the God of these other creation of these other creation myths or epics, uh, depending on how, you know the language that you're comfortable with, there uh, is incapable of love? Um, logically, yes. In the in the sense that that um, love requires relationship, love requires subject object, and if God just simply divided Himself, it's just He's just loving Himself in another form. That's it. And and uh, you know that's like me saying, well, you know, I'm a father sometimes, and it's classic modalism, right? I'm a father sometimes, I'm a son sometimes. So you know, I'll pour myself out on uh, my my fathernessness and then on my sonnessness at another time, but it's just me loving myself. And okay, but pro, you know, process theologians, uh, panentheists would say, uh, would answer that with, look, I, you know, I love the cells of my body. Uh, I, I'm dependent upon the cells of my body, and so I do what I can to, to care for them, to protect them, to nourish them. Uh, I definitely love them. Uh, indeed, you know, a lot of the research in psychoneuroimmunology yeah. shows us that I, I love my body. My body will respond to that. So is well, it not I, possible not dis- that... Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I, I totally agree with that. And that, that you care for yourself and you love yourself. You, you know, you love others the way you love yourself. So uh, on if, if we're just talking about um, our ability to express affection and kindness and grace and all of the attributes um, of love toward ourselves or other people, um, that's fine. What what we're talking about is, I think, something different, and that is within the very character and nature of God does relationship exist, where there is a face-to-face relationship, where, you know, I can love myself, but, you know... I just don't want us to get tricked by a definition like the, you know... Yeah, but let's, I, let's I go agree to, with you. Let's go to something that I think is very, very powerful in your book, and 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 I relate to it maybe because of the years I spent practicing criminalistics. Uh, I mean, the, I I and you heard me in the setup, and we've talked before. You know that forgiveness is, in as far as I'm concerned, that's a cornerstone to self improvement. If if you don't have that process going for you. Uh, if you don't begin there, then the rest of it is it just has nothing to build on. Uh, and and your story is a great detective story. And so I want our audience to think of the most, I mean, unimaginable kind of pain that could be caused to a person. That's what that's what you created in this book. And then and then what you have is a story of how important it is for him to go through the forgiveness process before, well, in a sense, before truth is even revealed to him about, you know, the the entire process. I looked at this story and I thought, you know, in in the real world, if this bad guy were come upon by Mackenzie and he were to shoot and kill him, the court would probably deem it justifiable. Uh, you know, so what prompted you to hinge so much upon the forgiveness in this book? Um, because the the book is largely the process, as you're saying, and I love that you use the word process, because transformation is a process. It's not a single event. And forgiveness itself is a process that's inside any transformational process. You know, the, the fact that evil exists and that we get hurt and we get damaged, 
that means we are going to deal with the issue of forgiveness. It's, it is going to be front and center, and it, has, it is so layered because it not only includes, you know, my background, part of my great sadness is sexual abuse. It started for me about age four and a half, and it was a lot. And, um, and then I went to boarding school when I was six and continued there. So part of the process for me wasn't just to forgive those who abused me. It was to forgive myself. Um, so much of shame was connected to my, my own sense of who I am. And, uh, you know, I felt responsible. Even though I'm five years old, six years old, whatever, you still, uh, part of that is that you still are confused by it. And you still take ownership as if you're the one that caused this because, you know, you're the bad person. You're the, the person that is full of, of, yeah. of the evil and the shame. So, um, when I'm looking at this story, I, I, I thought about different scenarios to really capture the center of the pain. And I, I picked what I think is the greatest pain a human being can suffer, and that is the loss between a parent and a child. And um, in, you know, in the studies, in the psychological studies, it's agreed. That is it. I mean, it's greater than the loss between a, uh, a spouse. It's, there is something about this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and this loss is paramount. And so that loss asks the best questions and raises the best issues, because now with that loss, what do I do with the perpetrator? What do I do with my, my own sense of inability to stop it? What do I do with these issues of forgiveness? And you, and you get to watch McKinsey. Now, and here's, the, here's part of the miracle, I think, of the story in some senses, is that is pieces that don't seem related to forgiveness have to be set in place in order for the forgiveness to actually continue its process. Does that make any sense? Absolutely, absolutely. So there are and, certain and I do, lies, and I, for example. I, I do think Miracle of the Book was a good way to, to uh, frame that. Please continue, though. Uh, you know, there are certain lies that if we don't have those dealt with, then we don't have any clarity about the issue of where how, or how deep the issue of forgiveness goes into our hearts. So Mackenzie doesn't actually deal with the, the depth of forgiving the man who perpetrated this evil in his life. Um, he has to deal with his father before he even gets close to that. He has to deal with some other things before he can even begin to deal with his father and, and the forgiveness issues that are involved there. So there is this movement in our lives. And to me, only God is the, the great physician in the sense of knowing the intricacy of a human being's soul that has been uniquely damaged and how, what in the world is the process going to be to begin to unwind that damage. And we're just not smart enough. I think part of the reason that there is a plethora of, of uh, people who, who are helpful to our process uh, whether it's psychologists, whether it's spiritual formation folks, whether it's meditation folks, there there requires a huge gamut of uh, potential healing processes in order to deal with the huge gamut of the uniqueness of the human heart. And um, and Mackenzie has to walk through these in a very unique way. So 
So, there, you know, there is no single path to the healing of the heart. The, the, we're just too complex and too unique. But a lot of these helpful healing ministries, uh, regardless of where they're coming from, um, are, are very valuable to assist, you know, each of us in, in, yeah. a, in a process. Again, a great book. The book is The Shack. Now, let, let's take something this, the, out of what you just talked about. This idea that um, you were to blame for, um, you know, what happened to you as a child when indeed, obviously, you're not. That, that whole victim scenario is something that <clears throat> that accompanies almost always a situation of the type that you describe. I'm sure that you have encountered the teachings of the secret and this idea that everything that you know comes to you that's in your life you have created and and some of that I believe fosters a notion that uh you know well if there is forgive me shit in your life you created it uh, cre- you know, pushing this victim role. What What is your experience there? What is your take there? How do you see that? I, I don't agree with it at all. Um, you know, sure, we then add to the the damage. You know, I use the shack as the house, the soul of a human being. It's the house on the inside that people help us build. But as children, people bring huge amounts of damage that that we would have never chosen that we wouldn't chose for anyone we cared for. We didn't create it. People have the, and this goes back to my statement about we have no clue how powerful we are and that we can go into the heart of a child and bend it and shape it to the point that it almost breaks. And, um, and that child did not request that. And I, I agree. The idea that you are your own creator of your, of, of your own circumstance well, we all know that to some degree, yes, there are choices we make that have certain kinds of um, uh, results. But let me tell you, there are lots of things that happen in the lives of human beings that we had nothing to do. We had no control over. We didn't have the capacity to even deal with them. Sexual abuse for a child, they don't have the capacity to, to figure out how to deal with that. They're, that's an, that's a, a fully adult um, issue that has been forced upon a child and they don't have the capacity to create that kind of damage to themselves when why would they so there is a, right. an essential conflict philosophically saying that that child is responsible for creating his own uh, horror and uh, and that's to presuppose that the child has the capacity to understand the horror that he's creating you know which is ridiculous so um you know, it's not saying that there aren't consequences for the choices we make. We then continue to build on the damage that people have brought to the house of the soul. And, uh, you know, we then make the choices, whether for safety reasons, for shame reasons, whatever, to begin to hide the lies on the inside, to begin to store our addictions, to, to use the house of the soul in order to maintain a sense of sanity even in the face of the kind of hurt and the damage that we've experienced. Right. We, we only have a couple of minutes, Paul. Uh, if there was one thing that you wanted to communicate, I mean, the most important thing out of the story uh, in the book, The Shack, what is it? That every human being matters. 
and, and matters on a cosmic level, that, that every person who is listening to this, you know, you matter. The way, the way, one of the ways it's put in the New Testament is that Jesus will leave the 99 to go find the one. The one matters. You're not a nameless, faceless number in 6.8 billion numbers that currently exist on this planet. And the choices that you make matter. The, the movement, every little incremental movement of, of grace and life and freedom, which to me is all fostered within this affection and dance that takes place between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we got included into that. And in exchange, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit climb into our messes and begin to heal us with our participation because of the honor that is due the human creation. But it's that you are pursued with great affection, and you will be loved in such a way, loved to healing in such a way, that God will not become an abuser to do it. No matter how good the end is, God will not use a means that is abusive to accomplish that end. And Paul, we're out of time. Listen, there are links for all of you out there on my website to uh, Paul's book. You can find it everywhere, brick and mortar online. The book is The Shack. It is a great read. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you all for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. Thank you, Paul, for being here. And if... uh, If you have comments on our show, please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.